0: Today's episode is presented by Lloyds Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK.
1: And of course, the only way to implement a no-fly zone is to send NATO planes, fighter planes, into Ukrainian airspace and then impose That no-fly zone by shooting down Russian planes.
2: Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politics Editor at Politico Europe in Brussels. It's been another tumultuous week on the European continent as Russia's war in Ukraine rages on and the debate continues in the West over what to do to try to stop Vladimir Putin. You just heard NATO Chief Jens Stoltenberg firmly rejecting calls from Ukraine and elsewhere for NATO to impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine. He and others are basically warning you'd end up with a direct confrontation between NATO and Russia, in other words, World War III. There's also debate on other fronts, such as whether the EU could and should join the US and the UK in imposing a ban on Russian oil. And then there's the on-again, off-again saga of whether Poland will supply Ukraine with MiG fighter jets. As we record, EU leaders are gathering in Versailles, of all places, for a summit that was meant to be about fiscal policy, but is now effectively all about the war. In today's episode, you'll hear directly from two of the leaders who will be at the summit table. The Prime Minister of Bulgaria, Kirill Petkov, tells us what worries his country most about the war, and what it will do to support Western measures against Putin, and where it's more reluctant. We'll also hear a little from Christianis Karins, the Prime Minister of Latvia. That's from an interview we recorded a few weeks ago, but which seems very prescient now. But first let's get to our podcast panel. So it's a warm welcome to Matt Karnichnik, who joins us this week from the United States, from Arizona. Hi, Matt. Hello there, from the Valley of the Sun. Okay. And hello also to Eva Hartog, who has reported for us for years from Moscow, but is currently in Turkey. Hi, Eva.
3: Hello. Good to be here.
2: Great to have you with us again. Um, Perhaps let's To start with you, a lot of foreign journalists have obviously left Moscow in in recent days and weeks, and, and Western news organizations, international news organizations, have suspended reporting there. This morning, Russian lawmakers passed a law introducing jail terms for anyone who publishes so called fake information
0: about the country's armed forces.
4: A journalist can be jailed for 15 years just for straying from the Kremlin's narrative. They can't even call it a war.
5: No to war was the final message broadcast by TV Rain, one of Russia's last independent media outlets. A similar scene played out at Russia's
0: oldest
2: liberal radio station, Echo of Moscow,
3: which says it's been forced to
2: close. Can you just give us a bit of an insight into, I guess, the dilemma that you... And others have faced when, when deciding whether to stay in Moscow for the moment or leave, at least for now.
3: Yeah, I mean, not even two weeks have passed since the beginning of this onslaught of the war. Uh, but every day has just brought a lot of changes, I think. I think Russia and Moscow have changed so much in the past two weeks. Uh, to me, the country has become almost unrecognizable, I have to confess, admit. So I've been living there for eight years Um this is a new Russia. And part of that new Russia has been an onslaught on independent journalism. So I think at the crux of this is this idea that Russia is waging a war, but does not want to say it is waging one. You're not allowed to use the word war in covering the war. And so that put a lot of uh, independent journalists into uh, a tricky situation. So basically this crackdown that I mentioned it started with russian journalists and then the question was i think as a foreign speaking as a foreign correspondent in moscow we've wit- been witnessing this for years obviously the vector was very clear where this was heading so independent free journalism reporting in russia has not been possible for many years but it has been possible in the margins and we as foreigners always felt that somehow we were immune to that, that we lived in a separate bubble and that all of this was being done to limit Russians, the Russian population's access to accurate information. But that we, because we write in English, Spanish, whatever language, that we were somehow protected. We lived in a world of our own. And that changed dramatically. So for the first time, I think foreign journalists felt like they could be targeted as well. Uh, There were several Russian parliamentarians who actually made statements to that um, effect. And so there was just a mass exodus. And I have to add that there was also a lot of rumoring uh, or speculation and rumors that Russia might introduce martial law, which made the whole thing even more ominous. And that would imply that the borders would close. And so you would be effectively, you would be some kind of like game stuck in some trap. And so many publications, many journalists from and otherwise have decided to leave the country and, and see whether independent reporting journalism is still possible from within russia that is what
2: the big question is right now mm. i mean that's just all incredibly sobering and um you know i might you know you have very close ties to russia i'm sure a lot of affection for for the country right and and for a lot of the people there it just must be very difficult
3: Frankly, personally, and it's this is not a story about me, right? Because we're in the middle of a big war. Yeah. But I have to say, it's it's torture. I mean, I never expected to be leaving Russia in this way within a day. Basically, I, ha- I had to pack my bag, my my life, and leaving that aside, my personal situation. We're leaving Russia at a time at a crucial time for Russians, for the world. This is the time when you want to actually be there, and there's only so much you can do from afar. Parallel to this, of course, there's a crackdown or there's a lot of monitoring and increased control over the internet. So people are more worried about sharing messages, writing you on Telegram, WhatsApp, speaking on the phone. Everybody feels they're being monitored and it's just a matter of time because before they're next.
2: Yeah. As I say, just incredibly sobering and, and really, you know, quite frightening. Um, and we'll maybe come back and, and talk a bit more about, uh, you know, the situation inside Russia in a moment. But Matt, let's switch for a second to the international response. I mean, time is all a bit of a blur at the moment. But, you know, one of the things I think we've seen over the past week is on the one hand, uh, more Western pressure, passing of more sanctions. But we are we have also seen some some cracks begin to appear, if you like, particularly when it comes to Russian energy, with uh, some countries, the US and the UK, for example, saying they're going to ban Russian oil imports. And then within the EU, particularly Germany, basically pushing back against the idea of some kind of Russian energy ban. And Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor, actually coming out in writing in a statement and saying this can't just be done overnight. We can't wean ourselves off Russian energy. Uh, we're going to have to stick with this for now and rely on the other sanctions and measures that we're taking. What do you make of it?
6: Well, I think it's worth looking back a little bit, going, you know, maybe back to the fall, November, December, when all of these discussions really first started in the background. And I remember hearing from people back then saying, well, you know, the current sanctions are really kind of on a scale of one to 10 or sort of about a two, as I think we've said before. Uh, although in Germany at the time, there were people saying, oh, no, these are very serious sanctions that we, we already have against Russia. These are the sanctions that were imposed um, after the downing of MH17 back in 2014. And I think at the time, you know, there was a sense that Well, you know, the best we could hope for would be for some sanctions against some of the Russian banks, but not the main Russian banks, just sort of the minor Russian banks. And if you look at the situation now, it really is extraordinary how much has already happened. So I I think, you know, we really have to say that I, I think now, you know, a lot of analysts would look at this and say, well, on a scale of one to 10, we're sort of at an eight plus right now. Uh, moving towards, you think as high as that? Well, I I I, th- I think so, especially with these these latest sanctions that the U.S. has announced on oil and gas, together with the U.K. Uh, although, you know, of course, we have to remember that that the U.S. is not as reliant on oil from Russia as as Europe is in general, and, and Germany in particular. So, this is a reminder that there is real dependence here, especially on the part of, of Germany, and we've, we've known this, uh, and I think historians will will look at this and say that this policy, and, and here comes my, my trademark, German bashing people will, <laughs> will remind me of this, but, uh, you know, it has to be said that there were discussions going back a decade or more saying this is a very risky strategy to make Germany so dependent on energy imports from from Russia. And now we're seeing it play out in real time. And I think that Schultz would, would like nothing more than to join these sanctions. The uh, Green Party would like nothing more than to do this. But they also have to face the reality that the German economy needs to keep firing on all cylinders. And if you cut off those Gas imports, that's going to become very difficult. And this isn't just about household heating. It's particularly about German industry, I think, and also electricity generation.
2: Mm. eva let's uh, come back and talk about some of the effects that those measures are having, will have on Russia, on, on both the elites and, if you like, the ordinary people. Um, there's some of the measures that we've talked about there, um, you know, the kind of big ticket sanctions, if you like. There are also decisions by a bunch of Western companies. We've seen, you know, a lot of the big brands from Coca-Cola to McDonald's to Starbucks, you know, say they're pulling out. How much impact do you think that's having so far? And how much impact do you think it will have over the longer term?
3: I think that's a really important question. I think the underlying thought, of course, is that this time, as opposed to 2014, people will feel the pain and somehow attribute that to Putin. People are feeling the pain right now. And that's above all, it is the Starbucks, it is the McDonald's, it's the Netflix's, it's the IKEA. Um, it's a separate question, however, whether people will necessarily make the link with whatever is going on at the moment. So what I'm hearing from Moscow and from a lot of Russians when I was there a couple of days ago and and now, is that Russians are shocked, obviously. And you can't not be shocked. I mean, you walk into a shopping center... Half or more of the shop windows are down. The shutters are down. You can't get money any, anywhere. Your Netflix subscription doesn't work. And I mean, IKEA was, there were huge cues at IKEA. This, all of this is being taken away. All of these pluses, these bonuses that for years in, in my interviews with people, people have attributed to Putin, but, uh, and to Vladimir Putin's politics and reign. But what you're hearing right now is not the opposite of that. What you're hearing right now is, why are these brands doing this? This is shocking. But that doesn't mean there's a broad understanding of the motivation behind this. And that, of course, also has a lot to do with state propaganda and state media, because people just don't have access to the full picture. And so here you are being told that Russia is not waging a war, but is actually liberating Ukraine and Ukrainians from Nazis. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is pure evil. You, you Russia is the good guy here. And suddenly all of these brands are deciding to pull out. And it very much fits. I'm not saying this is a bad idea, but for, for a certain segment of the, of the population, it certainly fits the story, the narrative that they've been told by the Kremlin for years and years, which is that the West is out to get us. Uh, the West wants to keep Russia small. So that's one side. The other, I think there's this. There's actually, I, w- I was making this video compilation today about the closure of McDonald's. And this girl said, you know, I'm I'm shocked. I remember going to McDonald's when I was three years old for the first time, hamburgers, that was like the symbol of of the future, progress. So we're actually, we're horrified. We're sad that we're about to lose this. But there's also an element of nostalgia there, she said. And I thought that was so interesting because I think, There's this idea that, you know, what Russians fear the most is the 90s. This is the collapse. So there was democracy, but there was also economic turmoil. People, Some uh, another friend of mine told me what I fear most when all of this started happening is that I'll have to go back to growing my own potatoes. And she's my own age, you know, but this is the nightmare scenario. This is what she remembers from her youth, not getting lattes, but growing her own potatoes so that they had something to eat. And so people don't want to go back to the 90s. But the Soviet Union has a glamorous edge to it, maybe. So a bit like
2: the Ostalgi phenomenon that you had to an extent about yeah. communist East Germany, right?
6: Often associated with people who didn't really experience it. But exactly. Wait till they have nothing to eat but borscht for the next five years. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, they're gonna be missing their lattice. But then that's the question who do they blame? Do you do you have this kind of
2: popular, you know, resentment against the West or or is it directed against Putin? And I guess we don't know yet.
3: I'm not hearing much blame at the moment. And I think we also have to keep in mind that we're dealing with a apoliticized society here. These people have been mm. trained, have been encouraged for years and years not to participate in politics and not to to link cause and effect.
6: But what are they saying about the war? Because there, there is enough information out there on social media, even though it's being, you know, there their attempts now to, to crack down on everything. But I think by the by the time they switched off Twitter, for example, there was already a lot of uh, information out there and on Telegram and so forth. Do you think that the younger people are aware of what's actually going on in, in Ukraine? Or are they are the younger generations also just accepting the the state propaganda
3: so I don't like, gen- we have to generalize about Russians, but I like to point out that we've seen protests despite all of these laws that we started uh, off talking about. There have been protests in the past weeks. Um, and people are risking their livelihoods, their liberty to God on the street and protest the war. So there is a group that actually is very much against this and is very vocal. There's another group that's very much against it, but is not vocal because they're, they feel trapped. And then there's a big group, I think that you say they have access to information. I'm not so sure. I think they have access to a lot of information, but no real sense that they have access to real, accurate information. So I I hear a lot of very confused people. Um, There's Eastern Ukraine. I think a lot of Russians seriously that I've spoken to seriously, seriously believe that this military operation war is limited to the east of uh, eastern Ukraine, that the goal is to liberate Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, so the self-proclaimed uh, people's republics. And one of the questions that keeps being asked on state TV also, I think that's such a interesting strategy, is where were you eight years ago? So this is very much presented by state TV as not the beginning of the war, but actually the beginning of the end of the war. So war is peace. Russia is entering Ukraine to end a war that has been waged against Russian speakers in Eastern Ukraine for the past eight years. So since the annexation of Crimea, since the Maidan revolution. And so Russia is the peacekeeper here, the peaceful force. And I think a lot of people actually do buy that.
2: Right. I mean, it's real through the looking glass stuff, obviously, for for us. But I guess that is the power if you have a kind of central narrative that has been reinforced over years and years and years. If you have little fragments of information or more than that that don't fit with it. It's that kind of cognitive dissonance thing, right? It's somehow your your brain can't cope. I mean, I'm not making excuses here. I just, I guess we're all just trying to
6: understand, right? Yeah, but I mean, Andrew, I think we see something similar in the United States, to be honest, with all of these narratives that are put out there. And in, in the words of, of Steve Bannon, you know, you oh. just flood the zone with shit. Yeah. And if you keep doing that, enough people are going to question what is supposed to be the accurate, informed narrative, especially from the mainstream media. And I think in this case, if you substitute the mainstream media for Western media in Russia, and you have all of this propaganda being served up to people every night, uh, even the people who have access to that media probably going to really Question it or or not know what to believe at at the end of the day, which yeah, suggests yeah. that that these tactics really really do work. Unfortunately,
2: well, Matt, let's talk um, briefly about another aspect of the of the Western response to the war. If you like, this extraordinary on again, off again saga of whether. Poland, in particular, is going to give MiG fighter jets to Ukraine.
0: A plan is being discussed to provide US fighter jets to Poland should Poland give up some of its fleet to Ukraine.
2: I mean... In the week or two that we've been covering this, you know, it's gone back and forth. Uh, I think the EU foreign policy chief, Josep Borrell, was the first person or one of the first to raise this idea publicly that the EU would provide fighter jets, which seemed a huge step. We are going to to provide even fighting jets. The finger was kind of pointed at Poland as other countries, uh, Slovakia and Bulgaria, said this is not something we'll be doing.
4: We're talking uh, with uh, our Polish friends right now about what we might be able to do to backfill uh, their needs, if in fact they choose to provide these fighter jets to to the Ukrainians,
2: and uh, sort of fast forward through you know various um, developments here, and the Polish government uh, yesterday, as we're recording, we're recording on Wednesday, the Polish government said we are happy to give these uh, aircraft free of charge. To the United States and place them at Rammstein Air Base in Germany.
4: We are ready to give all our, of our fleet uh, of uh, jet fighters uh, to Rammstein, but we are not uh, ready to make any moves on our own.
2: And uh, we would ask for some used. Uh, U.S. fighter aircrafts to to backfill them. They didn't actually mention um, Ukraine specifically, but this was obviously taken to mean they would pass them to the U.S. and the U.S. would somehow passed them to Ukraine. And we had some pretty quick pushback from Washington, particularly from the Department of Defense, with people saying, uh, we don't think this is tenable. The problem with the plan, according to the Pentagon, is that the jets would take off from a US NATO
0: base and fly into contested airspace over Ukraine. Pentagon says that would raise serious concerns for the entire NATO alliance. US officials say they were blindsided by the proposal, which was posted to a...
2: And there's obviously a fear of the United States, if it were to take a step like that directly, that that would be seen as a fairly major escalation in terms of America's role in this war. What do you make of it, Matt?
6: Well I think politically it's obviously very sensitive if you look at it though in terms of international law this type of thing has has happened before in, in World War II, for example, you had Switzerland, even though Switzerland is a neutral country, was selling arms to everybody. This, I guess, with Rammstein, the U.S. doesn't want to do that because it, it would be very highly symbolic as as well, because that's the main U.S. air base in, in Germany. So I can see why they, they wouldn't want to do that. I hope that they do find some sort of solution here because it does seem like Ukraine really could use uh, those MIGs. And, uh, you know, on, on the other hand, I think what this story shows is that so much of what is driving this story now is public opinion, is the people's reaction, people's visceral reaction to what is happening in Ukraine. There is huge public pressure across the West to do more to help Ukraine. I think most people do not want to enforce a no-fly zone because they're worried about uh, nuclear war. But the fact that the Poles, which are completely reliant on the United States for their security in, you know, in the case of, of a larger, of a larger conflict would kind of take a step like this without consulting the U.S. first just shows how on edge even the Western powers are here and how each of them is sort of trying to, you know, pressure the other to take action.
2: Yeah, I I agree also. I do think it's it's interesting how, um, if you like, public opinion, the media also – you know including ourselves you know you latch on to things that seem fairly tangible in this like what can be done so we we hear talk about a no fly zone which we discussed at some length last week uh, this idea of fighter jets you know i think everyone can kind of get their head around uh, that we've also he- heard repeatedly the talk of you know eu membership for for ukraine which uh, you know it's clear is not going to happen anytime soon but it, it, i think it may be... and it's less obvious how that would help them right, in this not crisis particularly to be honest, yeah, it's, but yeah, it, it, yeah. some of these things are maybe more... Symbolic, it's just a feeling of something that could be done. And um, because I guess people look at these pictures and feel, you know, largely helpless. Yeah, yeah. maybe we'll leave it there. Um, Matt and Eva, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, you'll hear the perspectives of the prime ministers of Bulgaria and Latvia on Putin's war in Ukraine. Stay with us.
0: Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade.
3: Now,
2: in the days leading up to Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, a team of political reporters sat down with Latvia's Prime Minister, Kristianis Karins, when he was here in Brussels for an EU-Africa summit. Unfortunately, we weren't able to bring you that interview as we intended on the podcast because Putin launched his war not long afterwards, so we were rather overtaken by events. But one part of the interview has stuck with us and we thought it was worth bringing it to you now. It's the perspective of the leader of a country, very much in Russia's neighborhood, that has very direct experience of Russian domination. Here's Karins talking about how he views Vladimir Putin and his ultimate goals.
4: In our understanding, Putin's goal is to end uh, Ukrainian independence. Uh, when he speaks of uh, NATO encroachment or a feeling threatened, I think this is And also his military experts uh, would acknowledge that this, in no instance, the actual case, uh, his concern is Mm -hmm. Ukrainian independence, where he himself, in in this article that he published, he very clearly states that he does not acknowledge the right of existence of an independent Ukraine. He does not acknowledge the general principle of self-determination. And uh, he he wants to bring Ukraine into or back into the uh, the Russian fold our view it's you could call it simply neo-imperialism we live in a union of national democratic member states he is living or coming from a world of thinking of empire it's a holdout so to speak but it's very real and he has no qualms of using military means to make sure that his empire can expand and Ukraine is certainly part in his view of this empire
2: now let's pivot to get the perspective from another European prime minister who dialed into our political newsroom late last week to speak with our own Lily Bayer. I'll let her take it from here.
5: We spoke to Bulgarian Prime Minister Kiril Petkov, who came to power in December last year and has cast himself as a reformer and a pro-Western face for Bulgaria. Toward the end of last week, as fears were growing about the safety of Ukrainian civilians and the future of nuclear power plants in the country, we talked to the Bulgarian leader about Sofia's perspective on the crisis. Should Bulgaria feel unsafe on the Black Sea?
1: I think all of Europe right now should feel unsafe. I feel that even the news that we got this morning that a nuclear power plant was struck in terms of the administration building, but it's it's too close to a too big of a danger. So I think nobody in Europe is is protected at this point, both from what's going to happen next, we don't know what Putin is doing anymore, and also from even accidental nuclear threats that can happen from one of the power stations. As we know, there are a lot of nuclear stations in, in Ukraine, And then it would all depend on what would be the weather if something like that happens. We've noticed from Chernobyl how, where is the first rain, what kind of wind, all this stuff. But we're only within the proximity of big danger.
5: Mm -hmm. As I understand it, Bulgaria is sending humanitarian aid, but not weapons. Why was this decision made?
1: Uh, It's very important for us to support the Ukrainian people with as much help as we can. We've organized... Both the Red Cross and our, we actually, I had even a minister, cabinet minister decision to release directly stuff from our reserves on the humanitarian aid, both blankets, clothing. So we just want to show a very big support in terms of direct weapons being sent from Sofia to Ukraine on a bilateral basis. Uh, we believe it's. I mean, if this starts to happen, we're too close to to the conflict to to be able to do that. As you know, in the past, we had uh, warehouses being sabotaged from Russian operatives. We We are not taking the risk of such direct trade. It's another question if it's overall NATO or European joint action.
5: I know Bulgaria was one of the European member states to sign a letter asking for an immediate accession perspective for Ukraine. Realistically, how fast do you think Ukraine can proceed toward European integration? And what sort of message do you think this sends to other countries in the region that are waiting at the door?
1: It's a very good question. So, yes, we wanted to show full solidarity with the Ukrainian people and somehow we wanted to invite them in the European family uh, and to show that they're not alone. So this is why I was one of the first to sign. We also, as you know, we were one of the first nations to sign prohibition of airplanes, flying Russian planes over over Bulgaria. We supported all the sanctions. We started to become a very, very predictable and strong supporter of the NATO joint decisions and European joint decisions on this specific topic. Bulgaria is not anymore a soft a soft country that has only balancing acts. As you know, I even fired my Minister of Defence just because he was calling this by the names of hybrid by the names of military operations instead of calling it a war. So I don't want my Bulgaria is strong speaking in one voice without hesitation with with europe and and nato so the message that has to be sent to to all member states that want to get into the eu is that eu is more than just economic union we're also a political union and a pack of stability and it's important to have these accessions done where we can to influence this political stability and to show especially now on, on the eastern front that these countries are not They cannot take the hardship of kind of being the barrier between Europe and,
5: and Russia. So do you see this push to help Ukraine get some sort of fast track as primarily a symbolic move rather than a practical one?
1: To be honest, if it was up to me, they'll get my vote today.
5: To to become a candidate country or to become to
1: become a candidate country, yeah. Mm-hmm immediately we need them as fast as possible that's my my thinking. i also really don't like the idea of spheres of influence i really don't like the idea of somebody taking a a map of europe and drawing with a pen saying this can happen up to there i mean the sovereign countries if if they want to to be an accession country to the eu and We want to support them. We have to to put them on the fast track. Mm
5: -hmm. There has been a lot of concern about disinformation in Bulgaria, including Russian propaganda. I think last time we spoke, we talked a lot about disinformation around COVID. Now there's a lot of concern about disinformation regarding Russia's invasion. How do you respond to this? Do you see this as a significant problem?
1: Yeah, it's a very significant problem. And I think... It, it's really throughout, We're, we, they have tradition with us and misinformation, so I'm sure they'll, they'll engage all the instruments they have. How do, how do we deal with it? It's by speaking the truth and communicating as much as possible and trying to have reliable media that people can trust the problem. And we also, I, we supported the European move on stopping some of the, the Russian media. That's directly influencing. I, Even though I, I believe in free journalism, there is a level of a degree where one has to draw the line. So the fact that the TV stations were stopped and all this stuff helps. But the real problem is are all the internet sites, all the social media chat groups that they're engaging. And now it's starting to be a big priority on my list. Mm-hmm.
5: And uh, just to return a bit to the diplomacy front, would Bulgaria at this stage support further sanctions on Russia?
1: I mean, what we, what we are, we fully supported all the sanctions up to now, and I think there's some strong sanctions. The, the freezing of the National Reserve of the banks, of the Central Bank of Russia was a, was a big, big deal. If there, if there is a coordinated sanctions from the European Union, will be speaking one voice, no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of some sanctions would be really hard for us, which we would not be able to maybe do just because, for example, our only source of oil right now is a oil. We don't have a, another refinery. So, for example, banning Russian oil at this point in time would be a hard thing to do. But taking over yachts and apartments and assets and staying strong on keeping the reserves of not to be able to be transacted with on the Russian side. Now we're in full support. Mm -hmm.
5: Ukraine has been calling for NATO to enforce a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Is that something you would support?
1: That's a very hard one. Yeah, this is a hard one. And I'll tell you why. Because my heart says we should not leave Ukraine alone. At this point in time, I don't think I can send Bulgarian planes flying over Ukraine fighting with Russian jets. That's the reality.
5: Thank you so much for your time, Prime Minister. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
2: Thanks to Lily for bringing us that conversation and to Jacopo Baragazzi for arranging our conversation with the Latvian Prime Minister. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to click follow wherever you're listening right now so you never miss an episode. And while you're at it, you could leave us a review, which will help others find the show. Remember, you can always send us feedback directly by emailing us at podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks this week to Noah Zahn and our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening.